Welcome to Hit It, the Water Skier Magazine podcast, presented by USA Water Ski and Wake Sports, where we catch up each month with current stars, rising stars, and legends from the past from USA Water Ski and Wake Sports and its nine sport disciplines. This episode is brought to you by Visit Central Florida, the water ski capital of the world. I'm your host, Tyler Boyd. Welcome back, everyone, to the Hit It Podcast. I am super stoked to bring you this guest here today because he has long been one of water skiing's most sought-after coaches of all time. That's right. I get the opportunity to sit down and talk slalom skiing with Chet Rayleigh. Chet is an excellent skier himself, and he was actually an innovator in early wakeboarding and continues to be innovating on the slalom ski today. We cover a ton of ground. If you are a slalom fan, you are in the right place. We talk about technique versus equipment, the progression of slalom skiing in the last 30 years. For example, what is emphasized today? What has changed in the modern era? The importance of fin settings. What about the wing? Does it really matter if we put it on the fin? Or should we pull all the way to the buoy? Maybe it's a better idea to swing to the buoy. Chet draws on a lot of good stories, analogies, and big names in our sport to explain his points. A conversation with Chet is like sitting down with the master of slalom skiing to get the most profound insights as what to do out on the slalom course. So sit back and enjoy this episode with Chet Rayleigh. This episode of the Water Skier Magazine Hit It podcast is proudly sponsored by Johnson Propeller. OJ Props, a longtime supporter of USA Water Ski and Wake Sports. OJ Props was founded in 1936 by Oscar Johnson and his son, Ivar. Now, after nearly 90 years of operation, the fourth generation ownership continues the family tradition of building passion and ingenuity into their products. When you do business with Johnson Propeller, you can expect quality craftsmanship backed by their commitment to you, the customer. Visit www.ojprops.com. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Hit It Podcast. I'm Tyler Boyd. I'm back with you, and I have an extremely special guest today, world-renowned skier and ski coach. I'm going to throw skier in there because Chet Rayleigh joins me in the studio today. Chet. It's such an honor to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Tyler, it's an honor to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, I've admired you for so many years, um, not only as a coach, uh, but as a skier, even going on YouTube. You know, if I'm struggling in my own ski and I'm like, I want to pull up a video and check and see what he's doing that I'm doing wrong and maybe draw a side-by-side comparison. But um, super excited to have you on the podcast. We had a really good podcast with uh, Crystal Point. We talked a lot about skiing there. And it was just one of those things where I said, you know, this sounds like we need to have Chet to talk a little bit more about technique, a little bit more about skis. So I'm super excited. But before we get going, what have you been up to down in Florida? Well, I just got finished taking two ski sets this morning. So pulling a bunch of students and having fun in the sun. We've got water temp that's in the 80s right now. So it's awful nice to be skiing in South Florida. And that's what we've been doing, coaching, skiing, working on skis and doing the things most water skiers dream of all summer. We get to do it all winter. That's excellent. You know, it's interesting. I was on social media and it's might've been a couple years ago and it was like a meme video that was going around and somebody kept falling at the buoy or something like that. And somebody goes, 
man, you really need to go ski with Chet. And it's almost <laughs> become a saying within the water ski community because you are one of the most sought after coaches in all the world for decades. And that is why I'm so excited to have you on the show today to explain so many things that we may or may not know or may be a misnomer. Um, and to get started with that conversation, Chet, uh, people from all around the world come to see you and say, hey, Chet, this is going on with my skiing. And you jump in the boat and you start analyzing. I just wanted to ask you, what is kind of your first steps in that process when you've never seen anyone ski before? How do you begin to coach them? So there are so many steps to water skiing, as you know, so many to good slalom skiing in particular, that I have to begin with a cadence. I look at what rhythm and timing they run. You watch them pull out for a gate, you watch them turn in, you watch them go for a buoy. And even if they don't run gates or don't run every buoy, they have a certain timing. And normally, you know, there's a few steps to good skiing. If you have good direction, you have decent alignment, and you have really good timing. But timing's the most elusive because it's the hardest to put your finger on. Just like we're, we're in the Sweet 16 of basketball now, 2023, that'll date our podcast. But, um, you know, if the, the shot that you may have made a thousand times if the timing's off, it's a shot that you know how to make, but your timing's not right, and that basket will not go in. So timing and cadence are the very first thing. And if you can get them in the right timing and cadence, normally some of the skill sets will follow in behind that. Interesting. Timing and cadence. And then I would like to ask that with a follow-up question. Uh, you've been known for your five steps of learning in this process. Explain to us a little bit about the five steps. Well, they're not in any book. They're my own. But um, my five steps, I think, are pretty easy and fairly specific. Number one is you have to understand the concept you're going to work on. So if you've if you've been given an instruction, hopefully you comprehend it. If the comprehension is low, it's really hard to move to step two. Step two is you have to buy in. You have to push all your chips in and say, okay, I'm going to try to do this because I've obviously solicited help from this human being, and I'm going to try to implement what they're asking me to do. Step three is you begin to practice it. You become not an expert yet, but you begin to strike at it and hopefully gain some expertise in the preliminary steps. Step four is you begin to gain expertise. You gain competency in that movement. And last one is you make it uniquely your own. It becomes unique to you and individualized to you. And I think we see that in the world of skiing now. So when, when somebody kind of goes through that uh, five-step process, it would seem to me um, step two, that buy-in, that, that credibility of what you're selling. If, hey, look, if you don't buy in, it's going to be a really hard road. We may never get there. Uh, talk to us a little bit about the psychology of that, because some skiers seem to buy in easier than others. Yeah, the thing is, in the world we live in today, we have the Internet, we have lots of people giving us advice and telling us different ways to do it. We have ball of spray and the internet and YouTube and everything going, and they're all wonderful. And it's all just fabulous for the sport of water skiing. The more, the better. But some things are easy to implement, and some things are very hypothetical. And, you know, the old saying in, in slalom or in water skiing in general, paralysis by analysis, you can get caught up in the paralysis of analysis and just go down dark trails and never really make any gains. or you can get fairly simple and get very specific and make great gains. And most of the better skiers that you watch, if you really study their behavior, their, their actions are very calm and very quiet. They're, the things that they do, the admirable traits, I always say, um, like Andy Mapple one time told me I could go as hard as I wanted to go, for example. I finally said, Andy Mapple, if I go as hard as I can go, I'm going to end up in the bushes and you're going to be calling an ambulance. 
And Andy <laughs> said, well, then just don't move. And I said, oh, wait a minute. What do you mean don't move? And I then it, it clicked. He wants me to be powerful in my direction and my body position and my alignment, but he wants me still. And the first image that came to my mind, for example, for learning, is a guy doing an iron cross. We all, you know, we watch the Olympics. Most of us, most of us in the United States have done PE in our life and grabbed a hold of a set of rings and tried to muscle up or get up on the rings. And then everybody wants to do the iron cross. And not very many of us are successful. It takes a rare human being that not only can do an iron cross, but the guy who does it well doesn't even shake. It'd be impressive even if he shook doing it, but he sits very still and very quiet, which is evidence of his power. So Andy was giving you the evidence not only of confidence, but of power through your absence of movement. And I use that in coaching. And I think that's a picture, for example, that may not be super technical, but it's very easy to picture in your mind. So the guy that you watch ski across the lake, if you watch a, a Regina Jacobs go across the lake or a Will Asher, a Nate Smith, you see this quiet demeanor and yet they're flying at Mach 9 and yet they're not wiggling around. It would be impressive even if they're wiggling around. But the fact that they're so still and so quiet is evidence of their confidence and of their power. And that's a coachable maneuver. You know, you bring a good point up and a segue into terminology. People travel from all around the world to, to, to have you watch them ski, whether they're West Coast, East Coast, uh, wherever they come from. And let's take acceleration, for example. Some people say, well, maybe I need to point my ski across the course. Maybe I need to look at shore. Maybe I need to get behind the boat. Maybe it's second wake. Maybe it's first wake. And, and do you ever find yourself where we have to almost reset and redefine the way we talk about skiing before you can start coaching them or make sure whatever message you're sending works for them? And it may be some rhetorical analysis that's a little bit different from one skier to another. Absolutely. I think the very first thing we do is terminology. We speak different languages. When somebody comes to the lake, I've been speaking a language of a certain type of coaching or a style of behavior that I'd like to see. So the terminology determines the outcome. Every word is specific and every word has meaning and every word has power relative to learning. So yeah, there's a definite language. And I think the language in skiing, it really used to be diverse. It used to be so many different languages were spoken. But it's real funny to ski with the very best skiers in the world and how parallel they're becoming and how, how unified in their language they're becoming. I think we live in maybe the greatest time ever to be a wakeboarder, a trick skier, or a slalom skier because the amount of information we have and the condensation, the condensing of that information has never been greater. We're all more on the same page than we've ever been relative to previous years where there were about 14 different theories and everybody had their own way of skiing, their own way of thinking. Now it's fairly unified, and the language is beginning to come together. And, and, and I guess that makes coaching in some regards a little bit easier because you don't have to spend the time to, you know, hey, we're going to use this term for this, and you're calling it this. But this unification of going to Chet and saying, hey, look, this is what's going on, probably lets you dissect a little bit quicker. Absolutely. You and I come from a generation, even you're not old, but you come from a generation where terminology, for example, the word outbound, wasn't even yeah. used. Nobody talked about outbound. They, Wade Cox one time said to me, he said, I've seen a thousand world-class skiers from the buoy to the wake, but only a handful from the wake to the buoy. Now, he's exaggerating, of course, but it's a profound comment. I use it today. It's an old comment, but it's a profound comment because the elite skier of past and the elite skier of today are somewhat similar. If you aspire to running shorter lines or faster speeds, there's a point off the second wake where you have to decide whether the direction you're traveling 
and the swing you're on. And we, another word we use in today's language that never used was used in the past. We use pull, but swing was not yeah. an available word. Yeah. I think it was comprehended that way. But now we use the word swing. And how do you define a swing? How does a swing work? What's the difference between a swing and a pull? How do I not swing or pull long, but I get the effect that I want? Those are all really elusive things in a in a general world but when you get the specifics they're really not that elusive at all and pretty much anybody can learn them i had a, a guy at the lake today a good friend of mine his name is miles status law he's 80 years old and he's working on running 32 off at 80 years old i don't know what generation in the past thought that at 80 years old you'd be working on 32 and kind of upset if you got close and didn't make it but that comes from terminology and the knowledge of the game he's not getting injured every day he's not getting hurt and that's another factor in our game is not only to how do we do it, but how do we keep our bodies healthy and safe? Right. Because we are swinging across the lake at, at very high rates of speed relative to some sports. And we're on a little skinny plank with rudimentary boots by most standards. They're great for our sport, but they're rudimentary by a lot of standards. And small glitches can cause catastrophic outcomes. So the closer we get to really good terminology and really good technique and those things making real differences, the older and safer and better young people we can have. All right. So we've talked a lot about technique as far as terminology. I would, I want to ask this question. How important is technique versus equipment? And there's obviously a combination of the two, but some seem to focus more on one than others. You know, I've seen folks go out, they'll ski and they'll say, well, I'm just going to chunk that ski in the trash. Nothing's wrong with me. It's the ski <laughs> and, and, and the other way around. I just wanted to throw that question out there. Technique versus equipment. I think, I think, like you said, there's a correlation between the two. If I had to trump one over the other, I'll take technique. I think that I could take, uh, I know the guy that skis with me. No, I've seen him pick people's skis up, go out and ride them and ride them a lot better than the people that had the ski. However, I also know that if I took a race car driver and he's one of the best in the world, I, I could take, you know, Michael Schumacher in his heyday. I could take Verstappen in today. I could take one of the NASCAR guys that's at the top of his game and I could put them on a car that's unbalanced, not steering right, and they'll still be successful on the track, but they really are going to be successful if that car is tuned and running well. And they commented on it every time you must do a race. At the same time, I could have the best car in the world. You put me in it, I'm going nowhere and going where fast. I don't know how to race a car, and I don't know much about how to race a car. So if I have my choice, being a water ski coach, I work tuning a lot. I work on my own ski. I work on, like, I listen to the Chris LaPointe podcast. He and I are birds of a feather, and, and I love being mentored by Chris LaPointe. He's one of the few people in the world that has knowledge base like he has. And it's fun to bounce ideas on each other on things that a ski can do and you think in this day and age, we must have done every tuning there is, and yet we're all still exploring and looking for that next little piece. But that's every Formula One race car driver, every NASCAR, every rally driver. Everybody's looking for that little piece, including windsurfers and surfers and everybody else on the planet. We're looking for that edge. And again, we're, we're whipping across the lake at Mach 9. There aren't a lot of sports that whip at the rate of change of speed that we do. Very few. It's not that we're the fastest sport or the slowest, but our rate of change and the amount of pounds per square inch, you know, look at look at any of the current pro events where they put the pounds per square inch of pressure that are measured in the line. I, if you did that in a stagnant environment, no one can hold on to it. To think we hold on to it going across a lake is crazy. And when you apply that to either jump or wakeboarding and trick skiing, you'd be surprised it's really high there too, because we're loading and unloading the line and 
There's a 3,000 pound boat moving down the lake at a constant rate of speed with big motors that never slows down and never stops. And it doesn't love us or hate us. In fact, it's engineered for us, but boy, does it propel and propel well. And that's what we are learning to tap into. So the answer to your question in a nutshell, both are important. I'll, try, I'll take technique over setup, but if the setup's not right, you're going to struggle for a long time. Well, we'll stay down that same vein with technique. You know, it's interesting when I get an opportunity to talk to someone like yourself, who skied in, you know, decades of tournaments and coached for a long time. I feel like the last 30 years with progression, we've seen so many things. At, you know, in the early 90s, for example, I was a junior growing up on throttle driving with, we couldn't even figure out if we were going to use an 80-strand rope. We were in boys one using an 80-strand rope, getting jerked around the lake, right? And you grow up through that kind of system, and then speed control is introduced. There's different rope weights for juniors. Um, different technology when you go into, uh, you know, carbon graphite and all of these types of things. All of these things in some form or fashion can do something to your technique or you're going to have to make some adjustment. What has the progression been like in a nutshell in the last 30 years of what was the emphasis maybe in the 90s that we think about totally different today? Well, one one that comes to my mind right away is if you go back to my generation and the coaching that was given to me in my generation, a lot of times we'd say, well, I'd like to get why. And this generation looks at us and says, yeah, get why. That's good. That sounds fun. And I say, then I want to slow down. And this generation says, yeah, if you get why, there's some natural deceleration that can occur because you're wide on the boat, like a wide gate or wide on your jump. And my, they would agree with this there. Then I say, then I get a tight line, then I take angle, then I go. And this generation says, no, you take angle, then you get a tight line, and then you go. For example, my generation thought that a really tight line on a slow ski was a super value. This generation views the boat as one thing, propulsion. They don't want it for any other reason. They don't need to hold them up in the turn because they're going to be illicit and drop their head, drop their rear ends and tip their shoulders over. They're going to balance on their ski so they carry more natural speed without hitting the brakes at all. And as they take direction, they take an enormous amount of direction, but they're not seeking the boat in that moment. When the line goes tight, they want that full to create propulsion and acceleration. And that's true in wakeboarding, that's true in jump, and that's true in tricks. No more, I had a, a girl at the lake not too long ago, and I said, why do you think at the buoy you want to be so slow with such a tight line? She said, for my mistakes. Or her coach was riding in the boat with me, he about jumped out of his seat. So what do you mean for your mistake? And I said, wait a minute, let her talk, she's right. She said, so I can make a lot of mistakes, and if the rope's tight enough, maybe I won't fall down. Yeah, you balance, yeah. But this generation says, no, I'll balance on my own. I don't need yeah. it. I'm going to get high on the gate. I'm going to come high into the ball. I'm going to stand on the middle of this balanced beam that I'm on, and I'm going to commit to direction. And if you watch every great skier, I could go back to Jamie Bouchain and Karina Nolan and Emma Shears and, and Wade Cox, and if you look at the amount of angle or direction that level of skier has always risked or committed to at the buoy, or Freddie turn in for the ramp, or Brian Dodd or any of the, the greats of jump, or the wakeboarder at the top who thinks he's going to do an air rally with low cut and low energy, he might get up, but he's not going to get down. So everybody commits to a maximum at some point. But again, you go back to Wade's comment, and I've seen a thousand world-class skiers from the buoy to the wake, but a handful from the wake to the buoy. Every now and then, every squirrel finds a nut. And out of the buoy, you can commit to this great turn, and you get this great pull. The question is, to the totality of that swing, how do you manage it, and what right. do you do? 
So yeah, a little bit. yeah, let's dig into that real quick because we've seen skiers and and in and on the professional level, this seems to show up at forty one off. Uh, the consistency at 41 off, and we discussed this offline with the World Tournament. We'll see the World Tournament again this this year. It's just unbelievable, the scores. Like, if you're not running 41 or halfway down 41, it's just you're not going to make it into the final. And so the consistency is way up. But I remember a period of time where people were getting through 39 and getting this super, like, hard edge tight line out of one at 41 and couldn't control any line into two and they would just ski inside of it and you'd see it time and time again you're like how did that go wrong like it looks so good i just wondered if you had a comment to that yeah so one of the things that has become real important and knowledgeable if you listen to a real high-end skier which i'm sure you've talked to many and asked them these questions one of the things you hear a really high-end skier, especially those at 39 and 41, but in particular 41 and beyond, they will say, I was too early. <laughs> what, what the heck does that mean? Like normally people say that not the thing you want. Don't you want to be too early? And again, you've got a boat roof moving down the lake at a constant rate of speed. When you're at apex, the thing you really need more than anything is for that boat to get out of your way because it's beside you. You see the evidence of this whenever they miss a boat. They miss a buoy and they come railing through the transition and they're more likely to hit the boat on the way back to the wake than they are to clear the boat because the mm -hmm. boat's in their way. So then the question is, how do I get this boat out of my way? So mm -hmm. again, the, the, the idea of a long pull has really never worked. It's never yeah. been an advantageous thing. But the idea that the boat's acceleration can be your advantage. So I, I, use, a, I use a technique. I was with Bobby Franks in uh, Louisiana one day. He's got a beautiful lake in Louisiana. And I said, Nate was sitting in the boat listening. and um, I said, Bobby, I really don't care when you come up out of your lane or your pole. I don't care where you come up, but I'd like your tip to stay pointed in the direction it was traveling. Mm. So what that means is I get as much accelerate from the boat, hopefully to the first spray or into the bottom of the way. But beyond that, I'm riding the up part of the swing instead of the hard pull I can put in behind the boat. So again, generationally, my generation just went as hard as they could, as long as they could. In fact, I had a coach from Texas one time, I won't mention his name. But he would stand up as I went through the wakes and yell, pull, he'd stand up the boat and go, pull. They were trying to get me to add my power to a 3,000-pound boat. And back then, the driver was friendly. He was hand-driving. So right. if I went a little hard, he would feather it off the second wake a little and keep me alive. And even perfect pass was wonderful. It had a little float into it. Zero off, I love zero off, by the way. But zero off is the Terminator. It doesn't love you or hate you. It just runs down the lake, and it keeps its speed, and it gets the time. And it applies basically what you do. So if you can get enough swing speed into the first wake, then you can ride a lot of leftover energy all the way up. And hopefully your direction will be good enough to arc to the highest point on the other side to get you outside the boat at 41. And because you didn't overlean or overpull, the boat will be out of your way by the time you transition. And you don't have to eat that slack or eat that high speed maneuver coming into the buoy. Deceleration, by the way, is not a bad thing. It's just got to be at the right time. Again, part of the cadence of the past. Sure, sure. Well, let's let's talk about strength versus finesse. You know, a lot of a lot of times on this podcast, it gets brought up over and over. We recently had Jimmy Seamers on this podcast. He was inspired by Hot Summer Nights. That's like watching that as a kid. Uh, he was like, "I'm going to be a professional skier." Well, back then you had Shea Lander, you had Bob Point, you had some some guys that could put some serious serious force on the boat. Um, now you're seeing quite the opposite in the sense that 
maybe being lean and mean might be better for the system that we're currently under. Just wanted your thoughts on that. Yeah, so there's a mass times velocity equation just about any time, anything you do. I remember um, going through this myself, and I could mention other people. I know Chris Parrish would probably comment, say he went through a little bit of this, because Chris has the capacity, and I do too, not as a smaller human, of when if I go in the gym and I really work, especially as a younger man, I can put on mass pretty easy. I yeah. can put on bulk, and I could get strong. But when I got real heavy and strong, I was great in the gym, but I couldn't ski to save my life. And I think Chris would tell you he went through a period like that also where I saw him balloon at one point, but I don't think it was the best thing he had ever done for his skiing. It made him really powerful. I mean, he had arms the size of tanks and looked like a looked like a bodybuilder, but his skiing wasn't as good. Once he leaned out a little bit and got a little lighter, his skiing went up and that that leaner, lighter Chris broke the world record and ran a lot of 41s and a lot of 39s in his career and had a very successful career. And I don't think anybody from Will Asher to to Regina or anybody else would disagree with that. There's a point, and we all kind of know that point. If you've been skiing long enough or you've applied yourself, you kind of have what we'll call your fighting weight. And somewhere between 160 and 165, or say for a girl, 130 and 135, or for a six foot plus man, 180 and 200, they've got a zone in there. And when they hit that target zone, the leaner end of it gives them a little extra velocity without all the torque from the boat any more than if I towed a heavier weight down the lake or a lighter weight down the lake. I tow a, if I tow an inner tube down the wake and then throw a weight out of the back of it, that boat's going to strain under the weight of that heavy weight. I've, that anchor I've thrown off the back of the inner tube to take the anchor off, the inner tube's going to sail on top of the water quick and easy. So yes, there's some mass times velocity equations. I will say, however, that I'm always in awe of the real strength of even a very lean, light, skinny water skier. Yeah. Like, you shake the hand of a Nate Smith. He may not look like a bodybuilder, but don't underestimate the grip strength. Don't yeah. underestimate some of the unique strength that he has. Now, Regina, for example, she's short and she kind of looks strong. I mean, she is strong, but she looks strong and she works out hard in the gym. And I do think her, Karen Trulove, Vanessa, Elizabeth, all the current girls out there, they're all strong. I mean, these girls are wicked strong compared to the average human on the street. They are amazingly strong but i think their technique trumps their strength i think their strength assists them in difficult times and difficult situations just like i think it does with the boys but i don't i'm always in awe no matter how skinny they are of some of the unique i'll call it farm boy type strength yeah. that some skiers possess that you'd never see you just don't see it they don't have a gym appearance but boy are they strong in weird ways and i could put nate in that category he he doesn't appear to be as strong as he really is. And the man is as light on the water as he looks. He works his tail off. So out on the lake, I heard a kid ask him one day, he said, man, Nate, you look so smooth. And he says, well, I'm glad it looked that way. He's trying to be polite. And he was. But he said, that was 100% of what I had. Wow. And that that's a comment for everybody out there. So the smooth pass, that really nice fluid pass you have, those are kind of elusive and they exist. But sometimes those elusive are whitewashed like Tom Sawyer getting you to paint his fence for him, there's a lot of power. Again, maybe Andy's comment, the absence of movement whitewashes it. Maybe the alignment of your body whitewashes it. Maybe the commitment at the buoy that you risk more than the other guy whitewashes it. But I think throughout the sport, I would advise anybody out there who's not in the gym to get in the gym. And I'd be any, anybody out there who's a little overweight, lose a little bit. Yeah, it's almost like, uh, just to use another analogy, like wrestling, you're in a certain weight class, and sometimes the best wrestlers 
um, are not in the heaviest weight class. You know, they're like at 120, 130 pounds and unbelievable strength. And I think that's kind of what you're saying here. Like when you find that target weight, you may not look like a bodybuilder in the gym, but behind the boat, you're a force to be reckoned with. Let's flip the conversation now to equipment. Okay, so equipment, specifically the fin. There has been books written about the fin, fin settings. There is uh, things been added to the fin, subtracted to the fin. Do I do I dial it back? Uh, do I raise, lower the tip? Talk to us a little bit about the theory of the fin. So fin's like the dark web, but you, it's elusive. It's <laughs> out there somewhere, and I'm not sure everybody wants to go near it. You know, it's, you know, it's one of those things you got to be careful of. Um, I think the fin. I think today we have several things we need to pay attention to. So I'll, b- before I go to the fin, I'll start with the skate. You know, you take a you take a jumper, it's got a little bitty fin on, and man, you can do right edges, and it doesn't need a real big fin. Not that a big fin would work going over the fiberglass ramp anyway, but it doesn't have a big fin, and yet it's a very good edger. A wakeboard a lot of times doesn't even have an edge. There's a couple of wakeboards, I mean, fins that don't even have fins, and they edge great. So I think that you can edge a lot of things. You could edge many many you could you could go get a plank out of your garage and edge a plank kind of trim it up or get it where you can ride it and you could learn to edge it but the fin's a great ally and in slalom it's an assister and it does so many things for you it can aid in balance i can take someone who's incredibly imbalanced and with a few small tweaks i can help them gain balance through this little addition on the back of the ski i can take someone who's slow and literally speed them up by allowing that ski to have a minimalistic drag compared to what they were running previously and didn't know any better. I can add to tracking where the ski doesn't slide towards the boat when it's put on an edge and the fin becomes an aid to that. Then I think any one of those boards I just mentioned, including my surfboard, if you take, I, I had a, I, I had an instance long ago, I thought I just forgot how to surf. I surfed and I went out and surfed with my buddies one day. And the next day I thought I may just sell my boards. Like I would drop in and crash. And I would drop in and crash and drop in and crash. And I thought, well, I don't know what happened. Maybe I just lost it. It just went away one day. I went the next day. I drop in and crash, drop in and crash. And I'm dejected. I'm ready to go home and just put my surfboards on eBay and be done. And I flipped my board over. I was going to kind of dry it off, which I don't normally do when I'm disgusted with my surfing. And my right fin had broken off. Mm. And once I put the right fin back on, everything came back to normal. I'm, I can actually surf again. Wow. And I don't have to sell my boards. So the fins, very important. And it is a little bit of the dark web. It There's so many small things and one affects the other. I'll give you an example. You could say, Chet, how about depth? I could say, well, Tyler, depth can give you real stability. You say, yeah, I kind of thought that. I could say, it can help your ski slide better if you take a little out. You say, yep, thought that. It can speed your ski up. You say, what do you mean? I thought you said it was stable and helped it slide. What can also help the ski? Well, if I take some depth out, it'll run faster. If I add some depth into it, it can slow it down. I can move it back. And all of a sudden the ski becomes very resistant to turn. I can move it forward, it turns too much. There's all these little factors. And the problem is, I love one of Schnitzer's comments years ago. He said, when you add depth, you take away tip. When you add tip, you take away depth. And I didn't know much about what he was saying at the time. I said, what? He said, if I take away your depth and leave the tip length, the length of your fin exactly as it is, I've still rocked the fin into configuration where I've changed the telemetry of the fin relative to the use on the water. And he said, inversely, if I take away length, I add depth, even if the depth remains constant. And until you kind of learn that one influences the other, 
and everything has a plus and a minus. Like today, I'll give you a good example. Yesterday, Noah and I were skiing and my offside wasn't what I really wanted. My onside was bulletproof. We made one little adjustment, a couple of, I think, what is it, two thousandths is about a human hair. We made a couple thousandths movement here and there and it flipped. My offside oh. became great, my onside went away. And you, nobody believed that. You wouldn't believe it in a million years. You'd say, no, nah, I can move 10,000, 50,000, 100,000. Not if you're close. Again, the Formula One race car that comes into right. the pit and he says, I need a little tweak on my steering. When you're close to where you should be to get that extra piece of performance, you're back on the dark web. And, back on the dark web. <laughs> and when you get a handle on what you want, even the best in the world, even the Chris LaPointe's who have done this for more years than, than you and I can think about. Even for me, who I've, I've been skiing since I'm competing since I'm seven, I'm going to be 66. It's a long time in water ski tournaments, and we're still adjusting our fence. Right. Now, at the flip side of that, if you find <clears throat> something really good, you take a Nate. He doesn't adjust much. He, when he sets, gets a setting, he doesn't adjust. Regina doesn't need much adjustment, but she's found her groove. She's found her moment. And I think anybody who finally finds the groove, again, paralysis through analysis, it's tempting to keep doing it. And Chris and I need to, we need to keep moving around. So we got to adjust everybody's skis and we got to find ways of achieving things that maybe they can't do physically. If I've got a guy who had a, an Achilles surgery or a fused ankle or three vertebrae in his back fused, he may not be able to get over his ski the way I hope he can anatomically. Right. So I may need to augment. I need to put a shim under his back foot or change the length of his fin to accommodate for that. But an active, able-bodied person, like I, I have a young man named Luca Zazadze who skis with me, and Luca can ride just about anything I put him on, but he excels on certain fin performance with certain fin performance characteristics. You take an Andy Mapple. Andy told me at one point that he thought distance from the tail was one of the more important things on a fin. He told Mike Munn depth. So he obviously thought distance from the tail and depth were pretty good. And to my knowledge, he never changed his length very much in his entire career. He ran on, I don't know if it was tips or jaws. I'm assuming it was jaws, but he ran about 6840, 4-1, his entire career pretty much, according to him. His depth varied a lot. I, I, I remember him trying to ski at my lake one time at 2499. And the next time I saw him try a different ski, it was at 242525. That's a massive change <laughs> in depth. So even the elite Andy Mapple, was still on the dark web. Yeah, there you go. Well, oh, I love that. The dark web of skiing with thin adjustments. Oh, I'm going to use that one for sure into the future. Well, here's the thing. So on the very high level, people are tweaking. I mean, thousands of, you know, I mean, we're barely, yes. barely moving. Now, someone out there gets a, a brand new ski, pulls it out of the box. They say, man, Chet, I have no idea what I'm doing but they sent it to me, they tested it out, it's on stock, I'm just gonna pull it out of the box and I'm gonna ski. But kind of in that old school mentality, I think a lot of people think of de-acceleration in the sense of how fast am I coming into the buoy? So maybe one of the only fin things that they do, which is not really to do with the fin, is they change the wing or the brake on that setting to see if they can speed up or slow down. And traditionally that's been between five degrees and 10 degrees or 12 degrees. It all depends on the size of the wing as well and those types of things. I wanted to get your analysis on that uh, because there's there's a lot of people still, you know, tinkering with how many degrees are they gonna put a wing and 
I'm I had been of the mindset and and you know I was I was skiing almost as a weekend warrior through the Mentua division uh and I actually learned this one from Ian Trapp where at a regionals he just took off his wing and went out there and ran like 439 in boys 3 and I go wow and then I tried that and Mentua I said I'm not skiing with a wing I didn't ski with a wing at 36 miles an hour because my body weight at the time was more than I'd like, but I wanted to keep the speed acceleration through the turn. I just wanted to throw that question out there because I think a lot of the adjustment skiers make really just focus on the wing rather than going to get fine tuning of the fin. So I think on the wing, there's a real easy place to start. So let's say, for example, you came and skied with me and I would probably go through a, a, a simple three phase comment or, or, or questionnaire with you i'd say do you feel stable and that would be number one do you feel like you can just balance going down the lake because at that point speed's not going to matter much if you can't stand on the ski the another the second thing i would probably ask you would be relative to weight or the, the the load on your body meaning does it feel real heavy does it feel real light not necessarily fast or slow yet just heavy or light do you feel like through your hands or your body type or your strength ratio and where you are in skiing right now can you handle this or is it more than you feel like you can right. handle it and last but not least, I would say, do you feel faster? You feel slow. A lot of times the comment I hear is, I don't know. I don't know if I'm fast or slow. I can't. Sometimes I feel fast. Sometimes I feel slow. It just depends. So I have a pullout for their gait. Typically today in the modern era, as I said, we're all beginning to parallel a little bit more in technique. Unless you do a one-handed gait, a wide gait is a very preferred gait. So most of the people run a fairly wide gait. And if you pull out for the gait and a simple, simple use of your wing for your viewers and your listeners, are, would be if you pull out to the gate and you feel like you've got a pretty good gate and you cannot sustain the width for any time, mm. you've got too much weight. If you pull out in every gate, you run, pull out, you feel like you're going to overrun 99% of them, no matter what you do, you don't have enough. Mm. And if you pull out and like the baby bear, it's just right most of the time, you're pretty close. They're pretty close. Well, and that's, and that's the thing, because I think a lot of people think about the wing and they think, well, I'm at a hard pass. I keep coming out of the turn with slack rope. So I must be going too fast. Let's put it down another couple degrees. And you're saying, wait a minute, back that thing up at the gate. You've got another issue. Totally. Because first of all, slack line's not from your speed. So slack line, if you, if you take the rope and you tie it to the tow bar and you just stand behind it and just move it back and forth, as long as it continues to arc away from the center line, it's going to stay tight. Right. The minute you tip in or go in, now I'm not saying you feel fast and you're not tipping in towards the towards the center line and getting a slack line, and that may be a drag coefficient. Maybe you say I'm tipping in because I just don't feel like I'll ever slow down, and you might need a little more drag. However, like you said, and I was at the I was at Okahili one time, and Regina will attest to this. She was skiing and she ran three at forty one. That's a pretty good score. And she came in, and my buddy Paul was sitting there, and he says, "You don't ski with a wing." And she looked down, she said, I knew something felt weird. It fell off while she was skiing in the middle of the tournament. And she ran right. three or four. So just like you were talking, she, she adapted. And one of the things that the people out there that are listening to this, and Chris alluded to this a little bit in the podcast you did with him. He said it in a different way. But sometimes you also have to learn the language of your fin, the language of your wing. So you go out and it's a little fast. And you've been accustomed to more drag. And the first two passes, you say, oh, no, I can't do that. That's, that's just too fast. But you're a, you've adapted to all this drag. Or you're really fast. And you've got a, you need a little more wing. The guy coaching you says, I think you would benefit from this. And you bail out quickly. 
sometimes you need to give it a few passes and learn the language of the of the fin or the language of the wing and see over a few passes how well you adapt and learn that language. And if you learn it, you might feel it's pretty good by the sixth pass and you didn't like it on the second. So don't be too quick to move around that fast when it comes to drag. And wing is basically drag. I mean, right. I ran a ventral for a long time on my ski. I was reading a book one time and it said, you can, there all these, all these really good jets run ventrals, right? And it says, I started reading because I'm a novice and it said, add stability through high-speed turns. I said, oh, that's me, that's me. Stability <laughs> through high-speed turns. And I still think a ventral is a very valuable tool for some people, but it does add drag. A wing yeah. adds drag, a bigger wing adds more drag. And then at the same time you say, well, can it all create, also create lift? Yes, it can create lift. Yeah. Can it also drop the tail? Yeah, I had a bunch of angle. It'll start pulling that tail down. So like the fin and the dark, and the dark web, the wing can have multifunctions. One is drag, one is the height of the tail. One is can be lift. You say, well, can it do both? Can it draw the tail and create lift? If I bolt a rock on my back of my ski or bolt it onto the, the fin, it's gonna create lift more than if it didn't. So when you were skiing without your wing, probably that's the cleanest your ski ever ran through the water. Yeah. Wing is a, de a deterrent to, to clean water. It's definitely not a, a, not a promoter of clean water. So we give up something when we run a wing. And yet most of us whipping at the speeds we're whipping in modern, today's modern era, are running somewhere, like you said, between seven and 10 degrees. That's the average range. And you go to a guy like Nate who runs around eight, and you go to a girl like Regina who can run 10 or Vanessa who can run 11, and you start saying, wow, that's a big array. Well, you learn a little bit about Nate. He rides a ski fairly appropriate to his size. He's super efficient. Vanessa and Elizabeth tend to ride, or Vanessa and um, uh, Regina tend to ride skis a little bigger than their size, yeah. more like you and I would ride or a, a, a man would ride at 165 and they're 135. Sure. So they're gonna be using the wing to compensate a little bit for the size of the ski. And if I ride a real little ski, I probably don't need a wing at all. And I better be careful putting one on because I'm gonna be, it's gonna be hard enough to keep that ski at plane without it. So I don't know if that helps or hurts, but at least it's a, kind of an overview of wings. No, that's excellent. That excellent. It puts together a lot of misnomers, I think, that are, are still floating around today. So we take a look at the, the the fin and we take a look at the wing and the wing is a good indicator, just a simple thing. As you're out on the lake, you pull out for the gate. Where am I at? Am I drifting back? Talk to us about binding placement because binding placement, I think there's a lot of ideas floating around out there and we don't even have to get into rubber boots and hard shells and rear toe plates as much as where we stand on the ski. I've heard throughout the years, you know, coaches looking at where the spray break, is it breaking in front of their front foot out of the finish, the turn and going down. I just didn't know where that conversation was today. What do you think about binding placement and how do you identify should you move the bindings? A lot of anatomical differences. And then there's also technique differences. So with bindings, number one is I look at safety before I look at anything else. A lot of the little kids I have, I put them on very big skis. And I do it so there's a lot of ski out in front of them and they can really take a real rip at the wake and not feel like they're gonna die or go out the front. Because with little guys and little girls, if you give them a few crashes, they they start to shy away from the thing they're gonna need. And I, you know, I, I don't know if you know this, but years ago I used to ask little kids, I'd say, So what do you think you'll run someday? And you know, you'd hear 35, you might hear 38, you know, that would be like where they were aspiring to. Now, now every little kid you ask, well, I'm 41. <laughs> what if you're like seven what makes you think you're going to run 41 he said well nate does and will does and regina does. you know these people they all run 41 yeah. they think that's the norm now and wow. 
to, to some degree, they're not wrong. They think, you know, you know they, they data chips like me, they drink Mountain Dew like I do. And, you know, they're, they're not bodybuilders. They're not everybody's a bodybuilder. So they think they can do it. And because everybody, I have to look at under the lens that they're going to get better, right? Everybody, whether they're beginning, middle, or, or advanced. So I'm, I'm hoping that Regina and, and all the girls that I know can run 41 this year. I hope to see Jamie Bulls and Whitney's and, and sure. Elizabeth. I hope all of them run 41 this year. I'd love to see it. We're beginning to see the men, like you were alluding to at the Worlds, the last Worlds. And you see how many guys had to run three at 41 just to be in the, in the hunt? And you're thinking, how did the world change this dramatically? Now scale that down to boots to every generation, to every level. So if I've got a guy who tends to pitch, sometimes I will run his boots on a balance point slightly farther back so that tip stays up a little bit. But over time, I plan on moving his boots back as his technique improves. Okay. I got a guy who sits on his back foot. I may run him a little farther forward temporarily just so I can get him in a balance point. But more important than both of those. There's a rocker on every ski, and there's a flat spot on every ski, and there's a balance point on every ski. And that's the elusive part of your boots. And to find that means that you will start with big movements. So you may move a quarter inch. So the, the factory puts out a spec that says 29 and a quarter. And you put your boots at 29 and a quarter, and you just can't get off your back foot. You feel back the whole time. But there's a range on that 29 and a quarter. It might be all the way to 29 and a half. And you might be on the edge of that 29 and a half just in front. Now, if you go too far out of the rocker point on that ski or the balance point on that ski, you're going to lose that rocker point and it's going to start to dive and hook and do things you don't want it to do. Same on the tail. So the balance point, I think the manufacturer recommendations, normally they've done enough work and enough time to get you close. And then you've got to play with small movements. Like we use these micro adjusters, small adjusters now to try to not only keep the boots from sliding around, but to keep that minute adjustment right in play so that it doesn't slip around while you're moving or so you can re-identify it because the measuring tape is only so good. That little micro just gives you another way of locking down that position on the ski. And, you know, you look around today, very few people, as their boots don't slide at all, don't have one on the ski because they need that specific of their boot placement. And I think a lot of that, again, depends on whether you're healthy, whether you've had a surgery, whether you have a preconceived technique issue, meaning something, a flaw in your technique. If you're really balanced, I think finding your boot position is easier and I think that should be the aspiration of all the people listening to find me in good balance so that it's a lot easier for us and for you yourself to find your boot placement. Talk to us about training, overtraining, undertraining, not enough training. Everybody has a theory on training, doing back-to-backs. Do you get in the gym? Do you ski every day? Do you ski four passes? Do you ski 12 passes? Where are you at on that? I'm going to get in a lot of trouble on this one. This one will definitely get me in trouble because there's a whole body of people out there that are going to totally disagree with me. I think most of us rest way too much, way, way, way too much. And I think we judge it a lot of the times by how we feel. So we go by, I'm sore and I'm going to rest. So I'll make this muscle relax today. And there's some merit to that. If your lower back's tight, please don't go keep skiing and get a worse lower back. If your elbow's sore, you know, repetition of movement on that elbow is not going to make it better. I, I get, think you should get therapy. I think you should definitely be in the gym. No ifs, ands, or buts. I think you should be doing everything in your power athletically to be as good as you can, whether it's yoga or weightlifting or just raw strength training. I, I think that power and strength are valuable in any sport, in any discipline. And to that point, I would never take any athlete who's really strong or really talented or really aggressive and try to tone them down. I just try to make their technique match 
their athleticism, their technique, and their talent. So if I've got a pole vaulter that's a racehorse or a basketball player that's just strong beyond comprehension, I don't want to diminish his strength. Sure. I, I remember a story, and I don't know if it's true, but I heard it, and that was that the trainer for Manny Pacquiao, famous fighter, and Prince Asim, another fighter, that they tried to take one of them and give them weight training and slowed them down, and they just didn't do very well and lost a bunch of fights. They take the other one and took him out of the gym, and he won a bunch of fights. So it, it depends on the human being a little bit. Both of them are all, by the way, in the gym. Both of them are training really hard. Both of them are very flexible. Neither one of them are sacrificing anything. It's just like you and I said, does more bulk necessarily make you better? Probably not. Does being lighter help you? Not always. But I think we rest too much. I, I'm a bad example. I ski six days a week. I ski two to three sets a day, and I've wow. been doing it for a long time. And I, I'm 66. It don't really hurt. Yeah, I have days when, you know, everybody's going to have a train wreck once in a while or going to have a catastrophic moment. Um, the line goes loose or you crash or something happens, then I'll address those when they come. But I don't think you have to rest as much as people think you do. I think you can ski more and train harder. And again, you know, let's say you did eight passes and you did six buoys per pass. Take 48 reps of anything. And then you're on, you're on the right track now. Now, if you're on the wrong track, be careful because right. you will get better at whatever you practice. But if you did 48 reps, do 48 lunges. Do 48 bench presses. Do 48 whatever you're going to do. And jump rope. I don't care what it is. And then magnify that times two sets. I know everybody says, oh, you go snow skiing, you get all these turns. Did you have turns with specificity? Did you have turns with accuracy? Did, mm -hmm. are, you, are you doing turns to race? Or are you doing turns just going down the hill? I'm not saying you can't free water and improve your style. But what happens when you impose a buoy on a specific distance at a specific speed into that equation? Reps matter. Reps. So reps yeah. accurately are your window to getting better. And like so so you ski a lot, a lot. Yeah. I mean, and and, yeah. and consistently and and Chet, you know, I've had the opportunity to announce for you several times. And the first thing I always say, I mean, here comes Chet Rayleigh, if you want to see technique, the technician, right? And and you're you're looking not only to ski those reps to get those in, but you're also the quality of the rep seems to matter to some extent like you can't just be out there getting a workout i mean and having bad technique and reinforcing right. bad ideas the the question i have for you because you ski at a very high level go into these world championships getting to the top of the podium at these world championships how do you cycle up when you're already or do you need to cycle up when you're already skiing six days a week two sets a day so i don't know if you've ever watched a pro event where you watch the skiers before they go on the water and I'll, I'll use Nate. I don't think he'll mind. Normally, he lays on his back. He preps by lay, laying down. Um, if I'm going out on the water, you're going out on the water. I think there are sports where you better get your adrenaline up. And I'm not saying warming up is not a good idea. I think it is. But I think in our sport, a heart rate that's a manageable heart rate, like it is in practice most days when you leave the dock, where your focus is high, your technique is solid. The boat, I mean, the amount of time you actually spend in a pole, let's just let's say it's 1.5 seconds per pole. Let's just say it's two, make it two if you want. Six times two, it's 12 seconds of intensity. I don't need a lot of rest to do 12 seconds of intensity well. And I should be a lot better than I am for the Mount I ski. I mean, Mount I ski, I'm glad automated boat driving doesn't exi exi exist yet. And yet I'm really hoping it comes. I can't wait till my wife can drive because maybe I even get some more training, a few more trick sets even without. <laughs> 
but um because i hate boring people with all my skiing all the time but i really think that we can ski more than we think we do i know there were some wrestlers in history you were speaking about wrestling earlier yeah who were olympians and they would train seven days a week they weren't training a few minutes on a lake a day they were training six seven hours i went to the olympic training center one time i've been several times and I was in the wrestling room, and most people don't go in the wrestling rooms. Guys have cauliflower ears and a stink. So, and we all do. Wrestlers stink. And because we're sweaty and we're all in there together, and it's a room normally a little warmer than normal. So we're all keeping our weight in check. And I sit down, and all these guys are Olympic wrestlers. These are our, this is a U.S. team. And there's some guys in there that are even from other countries training with them. And they all came down when their, their three hour practice was over, three hour practice. And they plopped down around me, said, you want to roll around? I said, no, <laughs> no, I don't want to wrestle with you guys. No. <laughs> and they said, so we're talking. They asked me what we were doing. We talked about water skiing. On the other side of the thing, two guys never came over. They stood on the other side after a three-hour practice, and they did wind sprints. And they raced each other, and you'd hear them go, ready, go. And they would race as hard as they could to the other end of the, of the room, which was a fairly large room. And the entire time we talked, they did that. And I finally said, what's up with these two guys? three-hour practice they're still doing hardcore wind sprints against each other for as a race they said oh they're crazy they want to win the olympics they want to win the olympics <laughs> they both got gold medals by the way wow well you know that that's such an interesting thing to to dissect when it comes to wrestling i think a lot about it in our sport you know you think of a boat time of being just over 16 seconds and the the, the reality of that is is you you pulled out for a gate too you probably didn't really turn six ball you know there, there's a lot of things that going on it's probably more effort at some parts of the course just to get out of your deep water start to go around the island really and when you think about it like in football for example i i don't know i, I read this a long time ago if you actually took a broadcast game and put a timer on how much time was actually played from snap to when the, the referee took the ball and reset it, it was only like four minutes, right? I mean, you think about the, the, the plays going on for maybe seven seconds and, yep. and, and how many reps you would need to get in to do something maybe comparable that has a more fluid game like basketball or soccer where you're just constantly in the grind. I think skiing is in that in a lot of ways. The times that we are skiing, it can be very intense, especially at short line, but it's very short-lived, so it's very difficult to get the reps. Is that kind of what you're saying as well? Agreed, yeah. And, and you the, obviously, the shorter the line, the intensity goes up, and it's going to you're going to tell your body to rest more. But just like in the gym, anything, when you first go in, if you've ever done a two-a-day, most people in the United States who played football or wrestle or anything, they've done a two-a-day. I remember going home at the first time I did a two-a-day, and I, I got home, and I had to go back for practice. I was, the second one was coming. I told my dad, I said, I can't do it. I'm not, I'm not going to make it. By the second day, I was so sore and so tired, I thought, there is no flipping way I can continue on at this pace. A month later, it was easy. One month yeah. later, I was a machine. Now, that in water skiing is not always specific just to your hard work, but also the technique you employ. We've all had that past where you said, that was easy. That, that, that was no strain on me whatsoever. We've also had the one we say, oh my gosh. Now again, are we really tired or was that something physiological that made us sore or made us hurt? Yeah, that made right. us want to back away. So look, if you're, going to, if you're trying to work on a specific skill, let's say you said, Chet, I want to work on my little, my little buddy, Eddie and I, we skied together today. My little buddy's from Eastern Canada. He's one of the better skiers and at eight or nine years old in, in Canada. And I said to Eddie one time, I said, Eddie, when does the swing begin? And he said, at the beginning. 
He said, yep, I agree with that. I said, what is it? And he looked at me like I was stupid. He said, at the end, Chad, well, what if you wanted, what if I, you were going to take a lesson from me today? And I said, Tyler, I really want you to connect to the boat at the, at the apex of the turn. So I want you to start your swing, like turning for the ramp at the apex. And I want you to swing all the way to the apex on the other side. Not pull long, but follow the swing. How many reps do you need when you've been leaning to the wake and pulling instead of swing? Right, Even right. It's an easy right. line. Yeah. You're going to yeah. need a few. Well, and, and it's interesting when you when you discuss there, you know, these two wrestlers, for example, that wanted to be Olympians and the amount of work that it takes. Uh, a long time ago, I had the opportunity to go ski with Lucky Lowe. And Lucky always told it to me like this when I when I went down there and skied with him. He goes, you know, there's a certain level of dedication it takes to be a regional champion. There's a certain level of dedication it takes to be a national champion. And then there's a whole new level that it takes to be a world champion. And interestingly enough, we had Jimmy Seamers on on our last podcast. And Jimmy, let's take a jumping example, for example. He was one of the best boys three jumpers that we've ever seen. He held the record, I believe it was 189 feet. The next year, so when he's 18 to 19 years old, he not only goes up to 35 miles an hour, he goes to a six foot ramp and goes from 189 and breaks the world record at 233. We're talking 40 feet in jump approximately. And Jimmy goes, but I had put in the reps. And then he follows up with the comment of, I go, well, were you training before that? He goes, no, I had the reps, but I was also playing soccer before I went to school. And then after school, I went to soccer. Then I went and skied five sets. And then I ran 10 miles before I went to bed. And I never was off that schedule that whole year. It was the strongest I've ever felt. And, it, and that was the result of that. And I was like blown away by that story. Cause I'm like, how did you go up 40 feet? You know? Uh, but I think it drives home your point a little bit. Yeah. And we had a LPGA golfer that used to ski with me. And if there, I hope your podcast goes really far and people outside our sport, listen to it because I think all this parallels every sport, every sport can benefit from every sport. So she's an LPGA golfer. And I said, Hey, what's the most amount of time you ever spent on a grain putting from a certain distance? And she thought about it for a minute. She said, six hours. I said, wait a minute. Did you go use the restroom? I mean, what are we talking about here? <laughs> six hours on a flipping putting green? And she said, yeah. But then I went, when we were talking, I looked down. She had a chipping wedge in her hand. And I don't know if you've ever been around a really good golfer. I hadn't. I guess no, I had And the club that she was using, she called it a practice club, had a hole through it. The, the iron had a hole welded through. They had gone through it where the ball had hit so many times in a spot and it was the one she was using on the beach chipping some balls and it did it had a hole through it apparently that's not uncommon in golf wow how many balls do you have to hit to wear a hole through an iron wow that's wow now that's that's a great point chet i love your perspective on that I want to ask this question what do you perceive see as the next evolution in slalom skiing is it's going to come from technique equipment speed control maybe a mixture of all of them uh, I'm going to give my personal opinion. I think it's going to be a little mixture, but I think automated driving. I, I hope the powers to be. I've spoken to some of them in the last months even, and I hope that we see it in my lifetime. I know nobody wants more automation. Everybody's tired of automation, but I just think it would be amazing. I love all the drivers we have. I think cruise control changed our world. You can yeah. go out now and you don't have to. You, you, it's the same pretty much for everybody everywhere all over the world. Zero off, zero off. 
you get the same thing. It never misses times. It, it, we call them the times the tower from the towers and the boat still. And I don't even know why anymore because it never varies in time unless it fails completely. I would like to see that in automated driving. I don't even care if it's hard. I don't care if I lose six buoys personally. I would just yeah. like to know when I go out, it's going to be unified. And I, I, again, I'm not going with this Olympic comment. I don't, I don't know if we'll ever see the light of day in Olympics. I don't know if our sport is that sport. Right. But, boy, you put an automated driver and an automated cruise control, and you change the dynamic of the game. And now my wife can go out and drive for me. Not that my wife's a bad driver, but she doesn't drive every day. And she could drive me tricks. She did for a long time. Slalom, it's not something she practices. And for her to drive as good as my buddy Noah who drives me every day, or as Will Bush or Chad Scott or whoever it would be, she's not going to have that level of competency. But then again, who does? I mean, I drive a lot, and I'm not at the league of Chad Scott. I'm not at the league of the elite driver. They are a very unique human being. Well, I want a, I want a machine that does that. And I think when we get to that point, okay, we might all struggle a little at first. I don't think the elite skier in the world will. I think they'll adapt quickly. But I, I think we'd learn it just like we have everything else, just like we do a new fin setting, just like we did zero off, just like we did perfect pass, just like we did AccuSki, and just like we do everything else in water skiing. Yeah, we and, and it, we learn it. And and I think what into that comment, and and I I've asked that question uh, quite a few times, and that's the first time we've ever heard automated driving and the possibility of that technology. But that blends right into where we just were in this discussion with training. It's going to take down a wall of barrier to entry, right? Finding a driver, getting to the lake and doing all this. I mean, if you can click a button and get rocking and rolling, talk about getting some reps in. And, and, and I don't know, maybe I'm the only one out there, but it, there is a weird sense when you're at the lake, especially when it's busy, where you feel like I can only take six passes because I got to get back to the dock and give somebody else a turn. And, and you live with this conscious feeling of like, and because we're all very collegial and skiing, right? We want everybody to have a good time, everybody's family and all these types of things. But I will tell you throughout my experience, especially when it's busy at the lake, I think to myself, it's like, you know, I've been out here long enough. Maybe I should give somebody else a, a, a turn. And I think what comes from that sometimes, though, is I could be right in the flow of just like taking it over the edge and learning something new, and I take myself off the lake. And I think automation gives us more opportunity to go just train, 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 and uh, just eliminate some of those factors. Tyler, I want you to go swing from apex to apex. How many reps do you need? Well, Chad, I don't have a driver today. Well, Chad, I don't have anybody to ski right, with today. Right, right. You go grab your buddy and you say, don't run over me, point it towards the middle, it clicks in and you go ski. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. Well, here's, here's a good question for you, Chet. I water ski because, really a statement, I water ski because. I love it. I love it. I, my, my comment off the dock every day is, don't do it unless you love it. Just don't go. Don't, don't, don't go. And, and today, I have, I'm fortunate enough to go out every day and have great driving and great coaching and get to aspire to all these short lines and do the things that we do. And I have the best skis. And I'm riding on LaPointe right now. So I have Chris LaPointe on speed dial. You know, it's, it's, it's a lot. It's awesome. But if, if you put me at my baseline, which is 32 off, that's where I start most tournaments, most days. And you said, Chad, for the rest of your life, you can only do 32 off. But you can do it every day for the rest of your life. Oh, I'm in. I am in. I love skimming on the water. 
if you said put the automated driving in the boat and I can go trick without boring you to death and I can just go trick and put a few more reps in on my trick ski, I don't, I'm kind of nervous as to how many times I would ski a day and how many hours I would put in because if I have a free moment, okay, he's got likes. I'm kind of scared. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know what I'd do. So yeah, I think, I think that it's a passion and I, I love um, one of the guys that's joined the water ski family is David Akers and he's, he was a professional football player. He speaks all around the country and he speaks about sports and he speaks about his faith and he speaks about a lot of things. And one of the words he and I have discussed a lot is passion. So if you put love of the sport and passion, and I didn't realize originally, but the word passion means sacrifice. It means, it means you, you put in work. Well, that is part of the love of our sport is the sacrifice. You put in time. It's hard. You know, I know for a while the golf industry was beginning to struggle a little bit in the numbers, and they didn't like the decline. I mean, it's an industry that makes its living off people playing golf. And they found out that the number one reason for any decline was it was hard. And our sport's hard. And you know yeah, what? I wouldn't change it. I love yeah. that it's hard. I wish it was a little more mainstream, but it's eclectic because it's hard. My buddies don't want to do it. It's hard on you. It's hard physically. It's hard mentally. It's hard to learn to do. It's hard to get good at. It's hard. And that makes it all the more rewarding and all the more exciting. I'd, I would be so bored. I mean, I, in our sport, I don't know how many truly gifted athletes you've met in your life. Truly gifted. I, I, I mean, I could probably name them. I can say Darren Shapiro, Craig Llewellyn, for sure, Jeremy yeah. Kovac. I'd have to put Jimmy Seamers in there. I'm pretty sure Joel Poland must be. I don't know him very well, but I'm pretty <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he's, he's up there. Go, we could go through a small list. Yeah. Truly gifted human beings. And yet, there's a whole bunch of us hacks out here that we don't have those gifts. And yet, every day, we work as hard as the gifted guy. It comes down and say, Craig, jump up in there and do this. Craig jumped up in there and did that. Put your hand here, they do that. There's a bunch of us non-gifted guys and girls out there, and we just love trying. I'm the guy who sits sure. on the bench with you, and all I want you to say is, you're in, Rayleigh. Coach, coach, put me in, put me in. If I can get out on that water and skim on that surface out there, I have no idea why it's so intriguing to me. But it dominates the mind of my 80-year-old friend today, and it dominated mine. That's amazing. That's amazing. You know, it was interesting. I asked that question to Jay Bennett, you know, what it takes to be a world champion. And there's not a certain way to do it. There's not a talent level way to do it. And a lot of times the hard work conquers everything. Can what's I give your, you a, yeah, what's I your thought know, on that? I don't know if Nate remembers this, hard work conquers, but it, Nate might not remember this, but he said it. So we were at, I was at Sawmill in Indiana one time and I was doing a clinic and Nate was in the boat and sitting in the boat and driving, doing a little bit of both, like sitting in there driving. And at one point he said, um, not, not that I coached, taught Nate Smith how to ski. I'm not going to claim that. I think maybe Tynan could take a little credit for that or his dad, but not me. But um, at one point he says, hey, I got to go use the restroom, but wait for me. I said, Nate, you're not getting paid today to do this coaching. I'll get you when I get back. He says, no, no, wait for me. I might miss something. I think that the elite skier is afraid they're going to miss something. So they put in the time, yeah. they put in the work, they put in the effort. I think to be a world champion, you have to be so hungry and to get better at your sport. I don't care what level you're at. Do you want to go play golf? You and I could go to a golf course right now. Pick a golf course. I don't care where it is. There's going to be a whole bunch of people. There's going to be a whole bunch of people playing. How many of them are getting better? How many are just playing golf? Yeah. How many are improving their putt? How many are improving their stroke? How many just bought a Callaway, new Callaway club or a new club? Because they think that's the answer. Right, right. So your, your technique versus equipment. Yeah. I can go buy a new ski tomorrow. I've ridden most of the skis on the market. 
I could ride any of them, I think. I think I could learn to ride or be good or talented at my level on just about any of them. I think they're all awesome. There's some I gravitate to, some I think are better than others, and there's a reason I think some are better than others. But at the end of the day, it's gonna boil down to me and my hard work. Because whatever ski I don't think I'm that good on or whatever, whatever piece of equipment or whatever rope, if I pass that over to the next guy who's better than I am, and I'll use my quote, this is a quote I say, the only way to get better at skiing is to become a better skier. If you wanna get better at our game, you gotta dig in, find your passion, Please don't ski just for a tournament. Please don't ski just to go to the next round to get the next best score. Right. Get better craft. Become become good at what you do. I want I want everybody out there to ask ask a question of themselves. If somebody came up to you and said, "Hey, so you slalom ski?" and they said, "Yes," they said, "What what what skill are you really good at? What's your best skill?" I want everybody out there to think about what that is. By the way, as a coach, I don't coach mistakes. I'm not interested in your mistakes. I don't really don't care. So as a as as you go through your next day. I really don't care what you do wrong. Let's pick the thing you do best, let's enhance them. Let's pick the things we know you need to do and let's work on those. And if you do both those things, enhance the ones you're already good at and work on those that you're kind of good at, you're gonna watch those ones you didn't like start to disappear. You're mm -hmm. gonna have trouble finding your greatest weakness because your weaknesses are gonna begin to disappear as your strength build. I could care less if you bend over at the waist. Get in line, shoot a laser down the rope, put your feet, hips and head in line with that laser, then don't deviate, don't move as Andy said, be still. And I'll do that for one year, for 12 months. As many reps as you can get in and watch what happens to your skin next year. Yeah, yeah. Well, Chet Rayleigh, this has been amazing. I wanted to get a handoff to you of where people can find you. Obviously, you're still coaching a lot. You are yep. in the game, you are skiing a lot. And I know you got a lot of things going on. If somebody wants to find you, where's the best way to find you? PalmBeachTrainingCenter.com, PBTCenter.com. And my wife takes care of all the bookings and we'd love to have you come ski with us. And we, I may not be the best coach in the world, but I will give you all I got. Well, I'm going to tell you, you are one of the best coaches ever. I mean, Chet Rayleigh, this has been an amazing interview. And it's always a pleasure when I get the opportunity to, to announce and, and get you, you know, see you ski, what you're working on, pull you up on YouTube. So even though um, I'm not in Florida there to see you or ski with you uh, at a distance, I admire everything you've done in the sport. And I just wanted to thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Tyler. It's been an honor. All right. Signing off. We'll see Take you care. next time. Thanks for listening and come back and catch future episodes as we chat with water ski legends and current stars from each of the sports disciplines as we celebrate 100 years of water skiing. Thanks again to our sponsor, Visit Central Florida. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. We'll see you next time.